a religious leader. A revolutionary. A spiritual guide. The Son of God. Many have described him in different ways. But who was Jesus really? How did a humble group of followers turn into the world's largest religion? Join us in January as we investigate the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. Investigating Jesus, a revolution begins. A series at Stapleton Church. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you guys. It's been a while, but it's good to see you. My name is Matt Wolf. If you don't even know, I'm a, the lead pastor here, and I'm glad you're here. I've been out for a few weeks because we had twins. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Um, uh, I've had some paternity leave, and even this month, I'm just preaching. So if you need counseling, talk to Sawyer and Grant or something else, right? Okay. Um, you guys are good with that. But I'm so glad. I was here for Christmas Eve, and wasn't that awesome? Christmas Eve was great. I, I think it was maybe our best ever. We had the, the most people we've ever seen in attendance through our three services. Um, and on top of that, um, we, I saw someone that I've been praying for for months make a decision to follow Jesus, which is awesome. Yeah. And I, there's uh, some of my neighbors who I've been inviting for like two years. They finally came for the first time. Yeah, that makes me excited. And I know some of your friends and neighbors did too. So thank you, you guys. I, I wasn't even there the whole month. Thank you guys for making... Christmas Eve a success. So thank you guys. Give yourself a round of applause. Um, that was great, and we have a great staff here. They put in a lot of extra hours over this last month, um, and I just want to give a special shout-out to Sawyer Trap. If you were here last week, um, Sawyer not only preached, but he also led worship. Over three services. I don't know how he did it. I, I couldn't do it. That's incredible. And he did it because Bobby was out of town, and then our backup worship leader was sick. So, and then Sawyer got a cold the night before. Oh, my gosh. So that's like the Michael Jordan's flu game that Sawyer pulled off last week. So great job, Sawyer. Um, we all appreciate you and the whole staff for all that they did. Okay, so we are going to start this new series. And if you're like, well, Matt, I, I thought we were already doing Investigating Jesus. Well, you're right. Okay, so we are doing something unique. It started in December, and it's going to go this year, and even into 2021. We are going to go through the entire Gospel of Luke. Okay, Luke is the longest of the Gospels, which is one of the accounts, the biographies of Jesus' life. It's 24 chapters and 24 long chapters. And what we're going to do is we're breaking it up into several mini-series. Okay, and there's going to be some breaks in between that we're going to look at some different things. So that's why it's going to take like a year and a half to go through it. But I think it's going to be so good for us to investigate Jesus. And in December, through those five messages in the Origin series, we looked at where Jesus came from. Now we're seeing how this, this huge you know, mission that he started, this revolution that completely transformed the world, how it got its beginnings. So that's what we're looking at starting in chapter 3 today. Um, so we're going to look at how this started because I think a lot of us here want a new start, right? Does anybody else do resolutions, goals that you set for the year? I mean, it's just one of these times with the decade. I remember it was right when I turned 18, and that's when I really got serious and decided to follow Jesus. And I wrote down about 30 resolutions and goals. This is what I'm going to do, 30 of them, right? Still haven't gotten to them all. But, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to do all these different things. And I think that we do this. We want to change and we're like, add this habit, get rid of that habit, do this new things, achieve this big thing. I want something new. And I think when we come to a new year, it gives us this fresh breath of hope that, oh, maybe something new can happen in my life, especially with a new decade. Okay, some of you are like, I'm ready to put the 2010s behind me. Okay, I'm ready for a new decade. I'm ready for a new start. 
So who in here um, wrote some resolutions or goals for this year? Anybody? How many of you have already broken them? <laughs> you, you don't have to put your hand. Just get back at it, okay? It's okay. There's grace here. But that's what we do. We all want a new start, and we try these new habits and do these different things, resolutions, goals, and, and it's tough, right? It's difficult. And I know that most of you here today want something new. Most. Maybe not everybody. There's a few people that got dragged here or that show up just because that's what you do on Sunday mornings. But most of you are thinking this new year, I'm going to start it out right. I want something new in my life. Maybe it's getting rid of some old bad habits. Maybe it's trying something new. Maybe it's starting that business you've always wanted to. Maybe you're like, this is my goal. Or, or maybe my marriage has been on the rocks. I'm ready for a fresh new start with this marriage. I, I, I want something new. Or you've had the marriage and it's over. And you're like, now I'm, I'm ready for something new, a new relationship. I want something new. We all come in here, and I don't know what your new thing is, but we all are longing for something new, almost all of us here this morning. So how do we get from where we are now to there, right? How do we actually get the new, the fresh start? Well, what's interesting is what we're going to see here in this uh, chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke is there was a lot of people longing for something new. They were ready for God to show up and do something. Like, you guys are here. Okay, God, I want you to show up. I want you to do something new in my life. I'm ready for a fresh start. But what we're going to learn today is that there's one thing that you have to do, that you need to do if you want a new start. It's kind of foundational, and, and so often we forget it because we're trying to start a new habit, we're going to add a new thing, this new goal that we set. No, but there's one thing that we have to do if we really want God to show up and do something new in our life. You ready? You can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. Hmm. You can't expect a new start. You can't expect for new things to happen, better things, for God to show up and do something fresh and new in your life without a repentant heart. This foundational, it's kind of tilling the ground. You're, you're breaking up the ground so that you can plant something new, so that something new can uh, grow in your life. It's like clearing the table so you can set up something new. Okay, You've got to get rid of the old. You've got to have this repentant heart if you want this new start in your life. This is so important, and we just kind of gloss over it or move through it pretty quickly. We think, oh, I can just change these habits. I can just change who I am. I can become the person I've always wanted to be. No, you can't expect a new start, truly, unless you have that repentant heart. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Luke chapter 3. We're going to go through verses 1 to 20. You can follow along on your smartphone as well as um, uh, on the screen with me if you don't have either one of those. You got a little bit of buzzing? Did you hear that, Hunter? I don't know what that is. Holy Spirit. <laughs> you can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. Could you guys just say this with me? You can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. See, it's rhyming, so you guys remember that. Okay. Can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. So, why are we talking about this? Well, I want you guys to see what's going on in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. We read, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and I'm just going to stop there for a second, because Luke goes on to list seven different political figures that were alive at the time, political and religious figures, seven different ones. There's, there's the Caesar at the time, the great emperor, and there's also these tetrarchs, which ruled over little regions, and the, he lists all these seven different people. And do you know why he does that? Because he's telling you this is true. Okay, this is history. This really happened. And, and that's the cool thing about Luke. He was actually a doctor, really well-educated, smart dude. And 
when he became a follower of Jesus, he wanted to go back and write a history of how it began. So he wrote this Gospel of Luke, this account of Jesus' life. He went and interviewed eyewitnesses, went to the scenes of where all these things happened. And then he also wrote a second book called Acts, which tells what happens after Jesus died. Okay, so pretty interesting those two books go together. He wrote both of them. And he's saying, hey, this is history. What's really interesting, in, of these seven names, there's one of them that, that historians uh, that didn't believe the Bible, they were like, oh, there's no way this could happen because we have a record of this guy and he actually lived 30 years before any of this stuff happened. The Bible isn't true. And then, of course, archaeologists unearth records. Oh, there's another guy with the same name. <laughs> well, duh, okay. All seven of these people lived at the same time, the same place, and that's why Luke is saying, it's real, this really happened, and I want you to orient you to where and when these things happened. And he says it's in the 15th year, and it's kind of tough to know when this started, his reign of Tiberius Caesar. So what, but what we can know is that it was somewhere between the fall of 26 AD and the fall of 29 AD. So we wish we could get a little more precise, but it's pretty tough. But that's a pretty good range. Within those three years, this is where this revolution began, and it began actually with a man named John. And that's who we're going to see Next, and what's really interesting is this guy, John, starts preaching. We're not going to actually get to Jesus today, but it's okay. It's setting the ground, right? Before you have the news, there has to be something. There has to be preparation. So John starts preaching, and we read, actually, if you jump down to verse 7 for just a second, it says that John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. So this John is often called the John the Baptist. Call him John the Baptizer. Okay, because Baptist means something a little bit different today. John the Baptizer or John the Immerser. Okay, that's what he was doing, right? He was baptizing people. Call him whatever you want. He's John. John, son of Zechariah. We looked at Zechariah, didn't we? Uh, a few weeks ago, Grant Ryder preached a message in Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah, one of the high priests, um, or not one of the high priests, but one of the priests was working in the temple. Well, this is his son who was foretold through Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. And John is out there preaching to crowds who are coming out to be baptized by him. I want you to see that there's crowds. There are hundreds, probably thousands of people coming out to see him. And why is this important? Because he's actually out in the desert. Okay? He's out in the desert, and we're going to look at that region a little bit. But this means, back in those days, there was no water and very little food. This wasn't Coachella. Okay? This wasn't people going out there and there's all these vendors around. It wasn't like you can stay at the Motel 6 down the street, you can bring water bottles. No, no, no. There's no water and there's no food, and yet thousands of people are going to hear this guy preach. They're ready and they're eager for something. In fact, that's exactly what was going on. They were wanting something new. They were ready for God to show up. So why were they so anticipatory of something new? Well, I want you to look back with me in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Wilderness just means desert. The word of God came to John. Why is that important? Because the word of God hadn't come to a person in over 400 years. Almost 500 years. Okay? A half a millennia people have been waiting for a new prophet to come. For God to show up in a new and relevant way for their lives. They were waiting and they were eager. The very last prophecy of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, was the book of Malachi, and it was given in about 460 B.C. So now 460 plus the 26 to 29, okay, that's almost 500 years. And this phrase, the Word of God, had not happened. 
This was a very specific phrase. Whenever God speaks through a prophet in the Old Testament, when there's a spokesperson, he gets up and he preaches, he said something, and it's God actually speaking through that person, the Holy Spirit inspiring that person. That hadn't happened in 500 years, and people knew, actually, this John, as he's preaching, there's something different, there's something unique. This is a prophet of God. God is speaking to us. Let's go hear him. This is how we get the word of God today, right? But man, there's a prophet. Let's go hear him. Let's go hear this prophet. Okay, and to make their expectations even more heightened is something about John's ministry. And we see this in verse 3. Verse 3, it says, He went into all the country around the Jordan. Ooh. No, no, this is exciting. You see, he picked this location. Now, think about this. I told you that John was the son of a priest. Well, do you know what the sons of priests did? They were priests. That's what happened. It was a family trade. He got passed on from generation to generation. So Zechariah, it was his big day when he finally got to go work in the temple that one day, and then he wasn't really responding in faith to God, and God made him so he couldn't speak anymore. Remember that crazy story? So now John, when he comes along, he should take up his dad's profession and be in the temple. But John isn't in the temple. He's not where all the religious normal things are happening. He goes out into the desert, and he picks a very specific place next to the Jordan River. Why is that important? Well, because it was there near the Jordan River where some of the most important and pivotal events in human history happened. If you read the Old Testament, it was there at the Jordan when God's people had finally been let out of slavery in Egypt. They were wandering for 40 years in the desert, and then finally there they crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. Joshua was there, this great commander, and he led the people. Finally, they were going to receive the new thing that God had for them, crossing the Jordan River. Well, that's the location That's the location that John picked to do his ministry. Even more interesting than that, there is another thing that I think is even more pivotal that happened there at the Jordan River. There was another prophet that had come. His name was Elijah. Elijah. Now, we did a whole series on Elijah and then on his protege, uh, Elisha, Back a couple years ago, hopefully some of you remember that. But it's very interesting. At the very end of Elijah's incredible ministry, he did some awesome things. Fire coming down from heaven, yelling to people and they're repenting. You know, it's just crazy. All all this stuff is happening. But then as Elijah is about to leave, he actually crosses the Jordan River. Just like like Joshua had done when God's people entered there. And then he passes on his mantle to Elisha, the guy who takes over after him. And then he ascends into heaven on a chariot of fire. It's a pretty crazy, miraculous story. That doesn't really happen every day. In fact, it only happened one time in all of human history. Okay? Boom, that happened where? Right there at the Jordan River. So why is this significant? Well, the very last words of the very last prophecy given 500 years before was this in Malachi chapter 4. Verse 5, it said, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Now at this point, Elijah had already been dead hundreds of years. They didn't believe in reincarnation. But somehow God is going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the Lord, before God shows up and does something new and fresh and awesome. And he, this Elijah prophet, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And what's interesting, I picked this version called the Amplified Bible because it puts in parentheses like some interpretation. And this is what, how it explains this turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. It says, a reconciliation produced by what? Repentance. 
So this Elijah would come, this second coming of Elijah in a sense, this new prophet would finally come after 500 years and he would call for a new repentance. So now let's look back at what John is preaching right there by the Jordan where Elijah had gone up into heaven. This is what we see in verse 3. It says that John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, he's out there saying, you guys are all sinners, you need to turn from your sins. He's going to have some harsh words that we're going to read pretty soon. He's calling for people to turn or burn, right? There's a Bible thumper. He's preaching the word of God. He's saying, you need to turn from your sins and repent. And yet crowds and crowds are coming out to see him. In fact, if you look, jump all the way forward to verse 15, it says in verse 15 that the people were waiting expectantly. They're going crowds, thousands of people are going out there. We want something new and we know that something is about to happen. We're ready, we're eager for that new start. And what John tells them is you can't expect the new start without a repentant heart. That's what he's saying. It's time to get baptized, and we'll talk about that. You, to get dunked in the water, to represent that your old self is dying, to, to get all your sins washed away, and then you'll come out, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be new. You can't expect that, though, that new start, without a repentant heart. Now, I want to focus on this word heart here, because a lot of us say, oh, yeah, I've done a lot of bad things. I've made some mistakes. If I knew now what I knew then, I wouldn't do it. But no, what repentance is, is saying we're repenting of sin. That deep down in our soul, we have something that needs to be changed. We need a repentant heart. That's the prerequisite, the precursor to God doing anything new in your life. is a repentant heart. And that's what John's saying. Hey, if you want the Messiah to come, He's coming. But you've got to get ready. Are you ready? It's time to repent. And get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what John said to these thousands of people coming expectantly to hear Him preach okay the repentant heart i want to focus on this for a second because this is deep this is as deep as it gets in your soul in your heart yeah, i don't know if you saw this news story last year but there was the second case ever where a man who had um, hiv positive was cured they okay? went complete remission and it's like the second time ever that this happened this is pretty incredible medical advancement and what actually happened in his life was he got cancer and because of the cancer that he got he got a bone marrow transplant this happened in england and because of the bone marrow transplant and i'm not a medical person but what happens is your your marrow the very insides of your bones that 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 marrow in there got, got changed it got transformed and what happens then is the entire blood of this person starts to change the old blood gets taken out and the new blood slowly replaces the old right and what's interesting and fascinating, I, I don't even know how this works, but even the person's DNA begins to change. Their DNA be, begins to change and they, become, they get the DNA of the donor. Fascinating, right? There's some interesting debate about what this is, means for crime scene uh, stuff, right? The DNA means you're, you did it, but what if you have somebody else's DNA? What's going on? So that's what happens. The bone marrow transplant, from the very core of your being, physically, you're being transformed into a new person. And that's why these... Two people now have been basically cured of HIV, a life-threatening virus. That's incredible. What repentance is, is the spiritual version of that. At your very core, at your center, deep down in your heart, something is transforming and changing. 
And that's why we really got to talk about this. This isn't like, eh, I got a few bad habits. I didn't make a few mistakes here and there. No, no, no. Repentant heart is deep down in your soul. And you can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. So, what we're going to do for the rest of our morning today is focus on three different aspects of what this repentant heart is. Because I think we're like, well, I think I've repented, but I, okay. Well, now we're going to look at three aspects from this passage of what John is saying so that we can learn what a truly repentant heart looks like, what it is, so we can have it too, hopefully. And the first thing is that repentance is a radical turn from sin. It's a radical turn from sin. This is saying, I see that it's not just a few mistakes that I've made. No, no, no. This is sin that I want nothing to do with anymore. I hate my sin. There's something that Paul talks about with this godly sorrow. There can even be tears because I hate this sin. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I am turning away from that towards something else. I don't want that anymore to be part of my life. It's a radical turn from sin. Because we're saying, yeah, this is sin. Sin is breaking God's law or doing anything outside of his moral code. Anything. We're saying, yes, there is a God, and I have sinned against that God, and I repent. I radically turn away from that. This is what John is going to say if you look, starting in verse 4. And I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of this section. Because there's this quotation from the prophet Isaiah here, from Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. So one of the other prophets, Isaiah, was saying before the Messiah, before the Savior, before God shows up with that new thing, there's going to be this person who prepares the way. And now we know that John is that person. To prepare the way, to make straight paths, Okay, this was actually kind of common back in the day when a king would come to town, a visiting dignitary, what you would do is you'd fix up all the roads. Make sure it looks good. Okay, make sure those hedges are trimmed, right? And then you'd go out there and you'd like wave palm branches or you put out like the red carpet. Okay, that's going to be important when we get to the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday. But even more so than that, uh, they're, they're making way for a king, okay? We do this today when the Pope comes to the town, if you have, you, I don't know if you're aware of this. When the Pope comes to a city, man, people are spending millions and millions of dollars to fix up those roads. Make sure every window's fixed up. They make sure it's all cleaned and looking good just on the route where the Pope is coming, right? <laughs> Seriously, this is what cities do. I, I think he came to Philadelphia or something a few years back. That's what they did, spending millions of dollars. We've got to make that path look good for the dignitary coming in. But what Isaiah says and that John now is fulfilling is that it's way more than that. It's not just some clean roads. It's not just the single path where this king is coming in. But it's saying that every valley will be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. And the crooked roads shall become straight. This is major demolition. Do you see that? This is not just we're going to clean up the roads and sweep things up, right? No, this is major demolition to get ready for this king to come. Melissa's, uh, my wife, grew up in Moab, Utah. And um, her grandpa, Frank, everybody calls him Poncho. I never had the privilege to get to meet him before he went to be with the Lord. But Poncho um, owned and ran a company called Burt Explosives. Okay? And being located in Moab, kind of in that Four Corners area, he sold explosives to nearly everybody who was blowing up 
valleys and mountains to make roads through the Rocky Mountains and through all the different valleys, the LaSalle Mountain Ranges, all the way up to Salt Lake City. We've been driving uh, in Utah with Melissa's mom, Luann, and she'll point out and she'll say, hey, that's where my dad, he did that blast. You know, when you see the lines on the side of the cliff, that's where the explosive charges were put in. She'd say, yeah, my dad was there when they did that. He sold those explosives, and he would go to the sites to watch the explosion because he wanted to make sure it was working right. And like half of the explosions that, have, that were taking place to, to make valleys straight uh, and, I'm sorry, make valleys filled in and mountains made low in, in that area were, were provided by the explosives that he sold them. Pretty cool. And, and we see that, and I think that's beginning to get at what uh, this prophecy is saying. That if the king is going to come, if you really want God to do something new in your life, it's got to be major explosives. Put out the dynamite. It's time to blow some stuff up. If you have mountains in your life, if you have things that you put above God, if you have idols in your life, it's time to knock them down. If you have places in your life where where it's too low that that, that's clearly sin, you know you're, you're falling into that again and again and again. It's time to fill that in. It's going to take explosives. This is major, radical life change. Make the crooked roads straight. Uh, I've been doing some things where, well, everybody else does it in my career, you know, in my field. It's probably okay, right? But it's kind of shady. And you know that it's not just borderline sin, but it is sin. Stop. It's time to stop doing those crooked things and make them straight. What John is saying is that this repentance that you need is a radical change from sin. A radical change from sin. And this is important because I know that there are some of you here that are feeling convicted, but there's others who are saying, Matt, preach. There's some people in here who need to hear this message. I know what they did last night. I saw them at the bars. What? Okay. That, that, there's some people in here thinking, yeah, there's some people that need to repent here today. Well, guess what? So do you. John says next uh, here, He says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Really pleasant, elegant. Welcome, right? Should we start that every Sunday like that? Welcome, you brood of vipers. This is not a good thing, okay? In case you're thinking, oh, he's like Slytherin. No, no, this is not good. He says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Why is that important? Because a lot of these people were coming out because they're like, Ooh, there's a prophet in town. I'm kind of interested. I'll check it out. Maybe there's something new that could happen. I'd be there if God shows up. And then they go and they see all the sinners getting baptized and they're like, yeah, good, they need to get in there. Me? I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a descendant of Abraham and therefore I'm part of God's people. I'm a Jew. I'm good with God. I've been, I was circumcised when I was a kid. I've been going to synagogue every week. I, I follow the Jewish laws. I'm fine, right? I'm good with God. I don't need to repent. But John says, don't you even dare say we have Abraham as our father. That's not good enough. It's never been good enough. If you claim that because of your family history, oh, my family's Christian. Or, or yeah, I go to church. I got baptized. I got sprinkled when I was an infant. I, I even got dunked when I was old. I went to Sunday school. I went to youth group. I still go to church. I'm fine, right? I don't need to repent. It's just all those sinners out there. Well, if that's you, you're dealing with one of the sins that most people are the most blind to. Two sins, actually. Pride self-righteousness. And you probably need to repent more than everybody else. 
All of us, John is saying, all of us need to repent. All of us need to repent of our sins. And it's a radical change from sin. Radical. That's why in Hebrews 12, 1, uh, what we read, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's call it sin and let's get rid of it. Blow it up from our lives. Destroy it so it never happens again. This is a radical change from sin. But repentance is a second thing. Because it's not just a turning away from something, but it's also a turning towards something. So you've got to remember this with repentance. It's not just turning away from something, it's turning towards something. And what you're turning towards is something new. And that's why the second thing that repentance is, is that repentance is a tangible change produced. Within you, there should be something tangible that people can see, touch, smell, feel, taste. Okay, I'm, you know, that, that there's a change, there's a transformation in your life that other people see and know about. It's not just a turning away from sin, but it's a turning towards something good that's being produced in your life through this repentance. That's what John says. Um, if you continue on with me in verse 8. In verse 8, John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then in verse 9 he says, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Saying you don't just turn away from what's bad, you turn to what's good and righteous and holy. This idea of fruit is pretty self-explanatory. Okay? I've tried my hand a few times at growing stuff, and, and one year I grew a tomato plant, and all the tomatoes, the fruit it produced, were bad. They were rotten. Every single one of the tomatoes was worthless. They looked disgusting. Didn't want to eat them, right? They were rotten tomatoes from the get-go. This plant, even though it looked good, it was producing all sorts of stuff. It was producing bad fruit. Okay? It's not enough to just take the fruit off. Okay? We, we've got to actually put on some new good fruit, which means that from the very inside of us, because of that, turn away from sin because of the true repentance that we're having that good fruit is being produced from it. This is like what Paul would pick up in Galatians 5 when he said the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is character change. This is a transformation that's happened inside of you that other people can see. And like fruit, they can take it and they taste it and it's good. They're like, oh my gosh, this is so great that you have changed. Wow, I'm so glad that you're a loving person. Man, you used to be so spiteful. They'll say, wow, there's some joy, this this happiness about you. How do you have it? They'll say, oh my gosh, you're so peaceful. Man, when I'm around that person, I'm not patient. I'm not patient with them. I want to rip their head off. How do you do it? This is what people should be saying about you. Now, what we do know about fruit is it can take a long time to grow. <laughs> okay, It can take a long time to grow. Change is slow. You know, if, if you want to start a vineyard, it's going to take you years, if not decades, to get good fruit out of it. I, we get that. But what we should see is that there is fruit being produced in your life. Something. Maybe you're like, I'm still dealing with this sin, but look at this, I have this change. And other people should see it around you. Would you be willing to ask the people around you, have you seen any change in my life? Are you seeing any fruit being developed? Because that is what's supposed to come with repentance. Now, some of you are, are like me and you 
kind of grew up going to church. Your family was Christian. I, I accepted Christ when I was seven. I got baptized when I was a teenager. And if you were like that, you're like, well, what was my change from sin from? Like, how do I know if I'm any different than I was before? Well, one thing that you should notice is that you are different from the people around you. The people that have not made the decision to follow Jesus. You should stand out if you're a teenager and if you're in school. You should stand out from the other students in your class. Those of us who are adults, we should stand out from the other people around us too. We shouldn't be doing what everybody else is doing. We should have a different character that's being developed and produced because of the repentance in our life. So is the repentance that I have developing fruit? Because if it's not, maybe you haven't genuinely turned from sin and turned now to something good. Repentance is also bearing fruit. Um, what's interesting is that there's these crowds of people and there's a mixed group of people. Okay, There's the religious Jews and there's also some very terrible sinners. And what's interesting is some of them are asking John, okay, I want to bear fruit. I don't want the, you know, the axe to chop me off and get thrown in the fire. What, what, what fruit do I need in my life? And to some of the crowd, John says, okay, if you have two cloaks, give one of them to somebody else who doesn't have one. Meaning, if you have possessions that you don't need, you're generous with them. You're becoming a generous person. That's what he's saying. There's other people that were the tax collectors, and we're going to talk about them a lot through the Gospel of Luke, but they were basically taking money off the top. They would tell people, this is what you owe, and they would go way higher than what the people actually owed, and they would take that extra money for themselves. So tax collectors had a terrible reputation. The tax collectors are coming, getting baptized. They're like, what do we do? And John says, well, be fair. Don't take any more money than you need to. So you should be fair and just with people. That's what you should do. And there's a third group of people. There's the soldiers. So these are people that probably would do some sinful thing, um, rough people up a lot. And they're saying, what do we do? And John basically says to them, well, you need to treat people fairly and with dignity. Don't ever show injustice to a person. Why I'm talking about this is what we should see is that this fruit that's produced in our life is actually going to look different for every single one of us. Depending on your career or profession, it might be something different. Maybe you need to leave some sins or even common practices in your profession and do things a little bit differently. Now, some people think, oh, I just became a Christian, now I need to quit my job, go to seminary, or, or go move to Djibouti to be a missionary. Okay. Maybe you do. But maybe, like these people coming to repent, they just need to do their own job, their career, their calling with integrity to start bearing fruit, producing fruit in what they do every day so that they're the type of teacher that teaches with love and compassion and kindness to their students. They're the type of business person who shows dignity and respect to everyone, their clients. They're not trying to skim off the top. Produce fruit, a tangible change produced. And, and I, I think that it's important for us to remember it's not just we have to be a better person and, and try something. This is deep repentance that is producing this in us. That's why um, John says it's at the, the axe is at the root of the tree because it's the root where the fruit comes on. Okay? We sometimes just try to tape fruit on the tree. It doesn't work, okay? No, it's got to be from inside out. It's got to start with that radical, that, that radical change from sin and then it begins to produce fruit in your life. But here's the thing. What's amazing about John one of the greatest preachers, if not the greatest preacher up till that point to ever live. I mean, he's out in the desert. There's no water. There's no food. Thousands of people are coming expecting great things. I mean, this is, this is Billy Graham on steroids, okay? This is a great preacher, but what's incredible about John the entire time 
is he knows it's not about him. It's about someone else who was coming after him. Here's the third point about what you need to learn about repentance today, is that repentance is available only from Jesus. True repentance. If you want it, it's only available from Jesus. It's only from Him that we can actually have the change in our life or we need to have that new start. It's available only from Jesus. This is what John would say. This is what John would say. I want you to jump down to verse 15. It says, The people were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's saying, I am not even lowly enough of a slave to take off this man's sandals, his dirty, disgusting sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. He is so much greater, so much more powerful than I am, and you've got to look to him. He's coming. He's coming soon. John's entire ministry was saying, look to Jesus. He didn't even know his name at this point, but he knew that he was coming. What's amazing is that he he goes on, as he describes Jesus, he says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He said, I'm dunking you in water to show that you've been washed clean of your sin, but he's coming with the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God in power, and a fire, and a fire, says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's saying when this Jesus comes, this Messiah, he is the one that upon everything in human history goes one direction or the other. Jesus stands there and he is the dividing line between everything. And it's him that you need to look to there's two, different, there's two different metaphors that he uses here. And the first one is the winnowing fork. Okay, he says the fire, but we'll get to that. The winnowing fork. Do you know what that is? Okay, when they were going out and they collected after the harvest all the grain, they would go out and they would take these forks and they would take it on the threshing floor and they would kind of throw up all of the wheat into the air. And what would happen is that the chaff, the bad part of the wheat that you don't need, was lighter than the wheat. And the chaff would get picked up and blown away by the wind. And it would only be the wheat that would stay. So that's how farmers in that day were able to keep the wheat and get rid of the chaff. We don't want that worthless, terrible chaff. We want to get rid of that. We want to keep the wheat, which is good. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. He sifts the wheat from the chaff. And it also says that he comes with a fire. comes with a fire. Why is this important? Because fire does one of two things. See, they would use fire at the time when they were trying to refine something. They'd dig up something, some gold or or whatever, and they would put it into the refiner's fire. And any of the the junk on the gold that, you know, was just iron or whatever, it would burn up. All the excess, all the stuff that was worthless and was no good, it would get burned up in the refiner's fire, and all that would be left was the pure, beautiful gold. So when Jesus is coming, that's what he's coming to do to separate the wheat from the chaff, the gold from the junk, the the sheep from the goats. He's saying these people are holy and righteous and these are sinners. And Jesus is the dividing line and he and he alone. And that's why we say it's only in in Jesus alone that true repentance is available. 
It's available only in Jesus. And he is the one we need to look to. So John is saying, he's the dividing line. What do you do with Jesus? You've got to look to him. And what's so amazing is that that can be a terrifying thought. The fire, the winnowing. But it can also be a beautiful thought. Because if you let him, if you look to him and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then all the impurities and sin and wickedness and unrighteousness gets burned away from your life and you are transformed into something beautiful and pure and holy. That's what I want. And that's what happens through Jesus. All the old, disgusting, terrible things in your life can be made new and one day you will become just like Jesus, holy and righteous. That's what's happening slowly in your life as you're beginning to produce fruit and change away from sin. Because John didn't know it at the time, but when Jesus the Messiah would come, he actually was the perfect man who never sinned. He did nothing wrong. And throughout his whole life, he was righteous and holy, and he didn't even have pride and self-righteousness like some of us. He loved the lowly and the outcasts and the sinner and lifted them up and cared for them and loved them. And in spite of all that, in spite of all that, the people he came and loved to save, rejected him. They cast him out like he was the chaff. And they beat him, they mocked him, they scorned him, and then they hung him up on a cross. They punished him and executed him for crimes that he did not commit. Though he had no sin, he became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of our past, our sin, all that stuff that we're trying to radically turn from, gets given to Jesus And he takes it and he forgives it all, completely. Past, present, and future. That's good news. All that sin that we're feeling guilty from because the Holy Spirit is convicting us, that thing that we did 20 years ago, last night, this morning on the way to church, well, guess what? It's forgiven in Jesus' name when we look to him and him alone. When we look to Jesus, that past is gone completely. And we are given a new start, a new future. Because you can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that makes that possible. Amen? So as as Bobby comes up right now, I want to challenge you guys to respond to this message. Just as those crowds responded to John as he began to preach, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Because we're all looking for that new heart, but we've got to respond to this message, this word of God that you've heard from the scriptures today. Sadly, some of you here today will reject it. You'll think, yeah, I make mistakes, foibles, but everybody does. It's just, you know, the sins of my youth. Everybody did that when they were a teenager. And you're going to walk out of here not changed. And I plead with you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all your sin can be forgiven if you repent of it. If you turn in faith to Jesus. Sadly, that day, there were many who rejected John's message, and even one named Herod, who, when John called him out for some sin in his life, arrested John, imprisoned him, and later executed him. See, some of you will take the message today, and you'll imprison it. You'll put it off the side. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I don't need to repent. And sadly, you will be like that chaff and those impurities that will be burned away. And I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He loves you so much that he's willing to die for you. So please don't respond to this message today that way. Instead, turn to Jesus in faith. Faith, that's all you have to do. In repentance, say, I am a sinner and I need you to save me, Jesus. 
And if you're willing to do that, your sins can be forgiven today. So I'm going to give you an opportunity today to respond in faith by saying a simple prayer in just a minute. And then, do you know what you need to do next week? Get baptized. Right? Get baptized. Next week we're doing baptism. If you're ready to make that decision, it's time to go public. And next week we're dunking you. Okay? Not just to get washed clean, but so that the Holy Spirit can come inside of you, that you can show publicly that I follow Jesus. So some of you need to make that decision of faith today. But there's others of us in here who are saying, well, man, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time and I still have some sin in my life. What am I supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. You need to repent. You need to repent. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was trying to reform the church of his day, he took this document that was called the 95 Thesis and he nailed these 95 things up on the wall of a church in Germany. And the very first one said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That's what we believe. You don't repent one time. (laughs) We've got to repent again and again and again and again. Radical change from sin. This tangible fruit produced in your life. Available only through Jesus. So I want to give you guys the time. We're going to take communion here a second. So what we're going to do is just give you two, two minutes while Bobby's leading this song to truly repent, confess your sins, ask God to change you from the inside out. Um, we have our prayer team that's going to be available on the sides and the backs, and I'm going to be here. If you, there's something that you need to be um, praying with somebody else for, that's great. James, Jesus' brother, said, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other and you will be healed. Okay? Sometimes it's good to confess your sins to others and we'll pray with you and for you because you can be forgiven no matter what you have done. And then we're going to come back together to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. So we have a quick video that I forgot in the first service. So we're going to show this video real quick and then we're going to have a time of prayer. Hello, my name is Gerardo Alvarez. Today I just want to mention some practical things on how to prepare our hearts for the 21 days of prayer and fasting. Ideally, before starting uh, the fast, we should pray and asking God uh, to reveal the motives of our hearts and do the fast with the right uh, attitude. So He may show us uh, an area that He wants to work in us uh, or a habit or a sin that uh, we need to renounce. Another way to prepare our hearts is knowing that our focus is going to be uh, closer to God, our soul uh, will be more in tune, in tune with Him. So once we start the fast, we have to have a clear purpose. Uh, we need to be intentional. We need to know uh, what, what are the things that we, we want to see changed uh, in our lives. Uh, maybe uh, if it's a major direction uh, to make an important decision, uh, or you want God to intervene. Uh, relationship with a loved one, your spouse, or you want somebody to come to Christ, and maybe it is a health condition, uh, or you want revival in your spiritual walk. Um, praying, prayer and fasting uh, are vital for our spiritual formation. Expect uh, to be attacked by the enemy. Uh, he wants, he doesn't like you to, to pray or fast. Also, you will find we have struggles 
temptation of wanting to eat something that you are abstaining from, uh, but ask God for grace to strengthen you. He is faithful. Let the Spirit lead you and move you in this journey of uh, awakening. We will be praying for you. Thank you. Thanks, Gerardo. So if you look in the middle, there's these suggestions on the 21 days of prayer and fasting. And what I want you to do, this last thing on the, the front of your bulletin, I want you to literally write down what you're going to do in the 21 days of prayer and fasting. Do you want God to do something new? Uh, maybe you can write out, and this is something from Atomic Habits. Uh, I don't know if James Clear is a Christian or not, but it's, it's a great way to just start something new. Okay, it says, I will do this at this time in this location. So I want you to literally write down what you're going to do in this 21 days of prayer. So that you could say, I will pray daily. I will pray daily at 7 a.m. in my living room, okay? If you do this, you're actually going to be more likely to do it, okay? So write it down. Okay, the second, I mean, you can fill it in with whatever you want. Here's another option. I will fast weekly on Thursdays in my house and office, okay? Write down what you're going to do because you're saying in repentance, I'm turning away from sin and I'm wanting now to be some fruit produced in my life. I'm ready, God, for something new. And that's what this is for. So would you guys bow your heads now and pray with me? Um, Lord God, we come before you because we know we have sin in our lives and we repent. We come to you asking for forgiveness and healing and a new start. With everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed, um, if you're already a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus right now, would you pray for those around you who are not followers? And if you're here and you're saying, Matt, I, I have been convicted by the Holy Spirit. I'm ready for that new start. I'm ready to repent and declare Jesus is my Lord and Savior. If that's you, would you just slip your hand in the air right now? You're ready to make that decision. Praise God. What, what I'm going to do is just give you this opportunity to pray. If you've said this prayer before and Jesus is already your Lord and Savior, just say it again to give some confidence to the people around you. Repeat after me. Lord God, I confess I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me and give me the gift of forgiveness, eternal life, and your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Amen. Amen. If you made that decision for the first time, I just want to be able to encourage you to cheer you on. I have a gift for you.